Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. My guest this week is Sunday Times best-selling author Cathy Rensenbrink. Cathy's an integral part of the publishing world who regularly chairs literary events, runs creative writing workshops and speaks and writes on life, death, love and literature. She believes that everyone's life will be improved by picking up a pen and is at her happiest when she encourages her students to have the courage to delve into themselves and see the magic that will start to happen on the page. Her first book, The Last Act of Love, was the heartbreaking account of the tragic loss of her brother, and the follow-up, A Manual for Heartache, is a searingly honest account of how she dealt with her grief. Cathy's third book, Dear Reader, is a brilliant account of the books she's read and the impact they've had on her. It's a perfect trip down memory lane and covers so many books that will be familiar to readers everywhere. Her first novel, Everyone is Still Alive, was published last year, and Cathy's latest book, Write It All Down, came in January. I first met Cathy at the Booksellers Association Conference, which in normal times takes place once a year, and is a joyful couple of days where booksellers, publishers and authors, and others from the trade, get together for a celebration of all things books. Cathy's hosted the conference for as long as I've been a bookseller, and just makes the event. So I'm really pleased to be welcoming her onto the podcast. Cathy, welcome to Wasted Books Meets. It's a very lovely thing to be here. That was like the longest introduction I've done for any of my guests, I think. But I was just so excited. I was like, I've got so much to say. (laughs) We've been doing this podcast for a couple of years now, and I've had it in my head pretty much the whole time that I wanted to get you as a guest. So I'm really pleased that we're doing this today. Right now, normally what I do with my podcast guests is I normally go right back to their childhood and and start from there. But with you, I'd really like to start before your childhood, because I love the story of how your parents met. So your dad was an orphan, right? Who left home at 15. Yes. Tell me about it. I mean, I love my dad's story as well. And it wasn't really the first story I I knew. So the first story I consumed, I don't think was really a book. I think it was hearing my dad's story. So yes, he was the youngest of nine children born in Cork City. And his mother died when he was eight. And then his father died not long afterwards. You know, various people sort of tried to look after him. But he ran away to sea when he was 15 and uh, sailed around and then sailed into Falmouth when he was 18 and met my mother on Custom House Quay. And it was love at first sight. And they are still very happily together now. I don't know how many years later, more than 50 years later. And they were just a complete team and the happiest couple I've ever met by a million miles. And yeah, and it is all true. So obviously I spend a lot of time with them. So people always say to me like, but it can't be as good as it seems. They must sort of like, <laughs> you know, they must have off times or snap at each other or argue or whatever. And I'm like, no, they don't. This is just what they're like. So <laughs> bit of a oh, hard I love to live up to, obviously. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that they, they, it was like love at first sight. That literally does sound like a novel. I love it. So you moved around quite a bit when you were very little because your dad's job. But when you were getting closer to school age, you settled in Cornwall. Is that right? Yeah, we did. So we, we settled in Cornwall. My dad became a tin miner 
And they thought that was it because they thought that we should live in the same place for my brother Matty and I to go to school. And then the tin mines closed down in the late 70s. I was five. And then that meant we moved up to Yorkshire so my dad could get a job on Selby Coalfield. And then so that's how I grew up in Yorkshire. So I'm always quite interested in the way that life works out. Because there was an earlier bit, actually, where we did go and live in the Shetlands when I was really tiny. I don't remember it. But we went to live in the Shetlands and we were going to stay there. But then that, again, that's all to do with oil. So my whole upbringing was just based on where my dad, you know, as a practical but uneducated man could get work. Yes, I'm always quite interested in that, like the different reasons why people end up where they are and also what forms them, you know, to the point that, you know, I would sound different if I hadn't grown up in Yorkshire. Yeah. You talk about you talk about the fact that when you moved to Yorkshire, you were kind of viewed as being, you know, quite posh by the kids that were there. And then later on, you talked about when you went to university, you, you realised that that wasn't the case. But I had a similar thing when I was a kid. I moved from Berkshire and I moved to Gloucestershire. And, you know, it is that thing, isn't it, where at that age, when you're really little, when kids encounter somebody who doesn't sound like them or doesn't look like them, it, it, it takes quite a bit for them to process. Yeah, I mean, I think it was strange, really. I mean, I remember that thing of, you know, they used to call me posh. Uh, and again, I don't know what it sounded like I was, when I was five, but presumably like half Cornish, half Irish, just sounding like my parents. But then, I mean, also, but I did already have an extraordinary vocabulary because I was a very early and prolific reader. So I think it was probably that. That continues to happen. People always think I'm posh. And I think these days, I mean, it's just because I use long words and I write books, you know. So by the time you're talking about books on Radio 4, in my experience, people assume things about you. So I quite often, it's really funny now, I quite often get like accused of, <laughs> accused of being middle class and holding typical middle class <laughs> opinions. But you went to a private school. <laughs> it's just kind of like, why? Because <laughs> I'm on radio. <laughs> You did, so you touched on that, the fact that you, you're obviously a prolific reader. And you say in Dear Reader, actually, that you don't remember a time where you couldn't read. I use this lovely quote, which is something like, you feel like someone waved a wand and suddenly you were a reader. So obviously books have been part of your life for as long as you can remember. And you touched on the fact that your dad was a bit of a storyteller. So when you were little, he used to did he used to sit and tell you stories when you were growing up? Yeah, because he couldn't read. You know, he ran away from school. He went feral. He, he only learned to read and write in his late 20s. But he would tell us stories all the time and he'd sing us stories. So he was always singing us songs. And of course, it was before car radios, really. So we would roam around. It's interesting to me because this and the learning to read, my mother teaching me to read when I was very little, again, kind of before I've really got conscious memory of it. So my first memories are all kind of like bouncing around in the back of the Land Rover with my dad singing to me about Irish rebels <laughs> often being badly treated by women or British soldiers. <laughs> I was singing all about the evils of British soldiers when I was sort of three and four. So oh, wow. it's kind of, you know, so that was sort of my early storied upbringing. And then my mum always read to us a lot. And then I just don't, the sort of books that other kids remember as being their first books. I just don't really remember reading anything. I don't really remember picture books. My reading memory kind of slightly begins with Enid Blyton. And I remember it being, <laughs> funnily enough, kind of like a source of difficulty at school. Not in my first school in Cornwall where... I remember that they were just always really nice to me and they thought I was amazing. But when we moved to Yorkshire, the first teacher I had was horrible and she just didn't believe I'd read the books that I'd read, made me read them all again and then would tell me off for staring out the window, which I was doing because she was making me read all these books again and not, you know, I would say, you can't, you can't possibly have finished it. Sit back down. Oh my God. <laughs> I know. Horrible, oh, isn't it? 
I did go on to have some very brilliant teachers. I always feel this is the way storytelling works because we tend to tell the significant things. I mean, I do remember that woman and she was horrible. And so I tend to talk about that woman. And then afterwards, I always think like, oh, especially later on, especially once I went to primary school, I had some amazing teachers. And I, like, they never get a mention. I'm only obsessed about that woman being so horrible about my reading. <laughs> it stuck with you. It stuck with you. Tell me about being read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Yeah, so I do remember. So my mum was doing open university. And I remember that she would say that we had to amuse ourselves, usually like out in the garden. And then she would read us a chapter of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And so kind of, and I remember lying on the floor with my brother. I think we quite often just kind of slightly like lie in a heap together. So I can remember lying on the floor with him sort of lying next to me or slightly on top of me or whatever, lying in this sort of tangled heap of limbs as we did. And I remember the sun coming in through the window. And that thing that I've always loved when, you know, when you see the sun and you see sort of dust motes dancing in the air, you get it a lot in churches. But I remember that and listening to the line, the witch in the wardrobe and just thinking, you know, this is the life really. <laughs> I still think that. I mean, what a happy thing to be lying in a tangled heap of limbs with your little brother whilst your mother reads you the line, the witch in the wardrobe. I mean, that's, you know, that was a very nice start in life, wasn't it? Yeah, wasn't it? The Lion, the Witch of Wardrobe is such a magical book. Have you ever been to the Story Museum in, in Oxford? No. So they've got an actual wardrobe that you go through. Oh. I went for the first time really recently. I took my seven-year-old nephew there and um, had no idea that this whole little section was there. There's all these little rooms that are basically parts of different stories. There's a Philip Pullman one. There's something, um, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, I think. And there's a bunch of different things. But the wardrobe... <laughs> my nephew is kind of stood there like yeah okay can we go now and I was like no we have to stand in the snow we're in Narnia and I think it's a bit lost on him but it's if you ever get the chance it's really worth going. oh well I might do a trip then I mean I hardly know Oxford and of course it is so fascinating I had a lovely dream recently that I've been invited to go there and I had these sort of rooms probably in the dream it's because of reading books like Brideshead Revisited, isn't it? So I kind of like had this dream that I had these rooms. And then Max Porter was there for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway. So, <laughs> maybe I'll go to the story museum. I could take my son. I always, when I go to hotels, I look in the wardrobe, slightly hoping for the best. I still do that all the time. <laughs> God, oh my God, it'd be so amazing. It, it, the whole premise is just so magical, isn't it? It's, it's a story that just sticks with you. And I love the fact that it's really stood the test of time and still a modern classic now. Well, not a modern, still a classic now. When your brother was just 16 years old, he was hit by a car and ends up in a coma for nearly a decade. Now, I can't even begin to imagine just how horrendous that must have been for you. What do you remember about that part of your life? Well, it was such a kind of a rude awakening to the horrors of life, really, in adulthood, I suppose. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? I don't think I thought I was particularly happy just before that happened. But, you know, I, I mean, I really was. <laughs> I really was. And nothing, you know, I had a very lovely childhood in lots of ways. And you were only a year older than him, weren't you? I was a year older, yeah. Yeah, so it was, I mean, it just changed everything. And then I often thought it would sort of be the end of me too, you know, and then I kept... I was always trying to write things up until then and then I didn't write anything for ages and then I eventually did manage to write about it and I think that was really helpful but when you think of the time like you know so that happened when I was 17 and I finished my first book The Last Act of Love which was about it when I was 42 
Mm. And people saw, someone asked me recently, like, but you were doing other things between being 17 and 42. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I sort of was. But equally, I, I sort of wasn't. It, but there wasn't ever a thing like where it was like, oh, and then I didn't think about it for a few years. It was like a continual. Mm. It was either completely front and centre or it was a continual sort of very noisy psychological backdrop. And writing about it has been, you know, obviously amazing in lots of ways because I really like, you know, readers write to me, people that read the book write to me, and I really like that. And I think, I mean, I definitely do think about him and it less. Like, I think there's something about the act of externalising, you know, so it was all trapped inside me, and then I think to put it into a book and to have covers on it and then have that on the shelf, and you certainly know, it's like you can keep an eye on it. You kind of you like you know that's where it is. You know where yeah. that's where that story lives, and that story does live there now, rather than living inside me. But of course, I still feel sad sometimes more than other times. Yeah, it does. It, it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. The last act of love is your first book, and it, it was your memoir of that experience. When you first started to put pen to paper to write that, was that really? for you initially was that to help you process things or did you think you know what this is actually something that's been very difficult to live through and I think it's something I'd like to share with others I very definitely didn't think that at first because I wanted to write novels and I'd often tried to write it as a novel or try to use bits of it in a novel and I just like completely failed I couldn't you know and then I tried to write novels that weren't about my brother but he'd normally arrive at some point try to take it over <laughs> so the when I started writing about it it was solely with the objective to write it out of myself to just try and like get rid of it so I could write it out of myself put it in a drawer and then get on with writing novels mm-hmm. and then as I did do it it became clear that it maybe could be a book and then I showed it to a couple of people and got you know people encouraged me and I now think that's probably the way it had to be. Well, I don't think I'd have written it if I'd been trying to think about it being a book because there'd have been too many objections to writing it. But then also I wouldn't have finished it or I certainly wouldn't have finished it so well mm. if it hadn't been going to be a book. And, you know, partly because my agent at the time, Joe, and my editor, Francesca, they just helped me so much be able to kind of like do it justice and do it properly. So it could never have been the book that it turned out to be without the prospect of readers. Mm. Though I still think the most important thing is that I did it at all. And I hope, you know, like if, if there's a parallel universe where the book never got published, which could well have happened because it's difficult to get books published. But in that universe, I hope that I like just printed it out anyway, the manuscript and bound it and put it on the shelf. And I hope I felt really proud. And I hope mm. I knew that actually that was more important than anything else. It was just the act of making a record of it that was the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And there is something about I'm preaching to the converted here, but the thing about getting something out of your head and putting it on paper that, that, that helps in so many ways, doesn't it? And I think trying to explain that to people that haven't necessarily made that association, it's quite difficult to explain why it does help, but it really does. Yeah, it does. I agree it's quite difficult to explain why it helps so much. And also, because I think people often don't believe me, and I don't blame them. It's the sort of thing that I'm sure... I remember before I'd written a book, and I used to listen to writers all the time, and I'd listen to them on Desert Island Discs, so the sort of things that I say now, you know, like, oh, well, it's the process that's really important. Oh, well, you know, the important thing isn't that, you know... Loads of people now think I'm great and I've got loads of new famous friends. The important thing is just that I wrote it down for myself and put it on the shelf. And I think if I'd been listening to me, I'd think like, oh, get off. No, it's not. But it actually <laughs> is. I mean, it's true. <laughs> it's true. And the most important thing about writing is the doing of it for yourself. 
It's the most important thing when you start off. And I think it remains the most important thing, which isn't that having readers isn't wonderful. But still, the more I write with every book, I've actually come more to this conclusion that the most important thing is the relationship between you, the writer, and the work itself. And that's really the reason for doing it. If you can believe that, that it's actually a really brilliant and liberating thing to believe because then it matters less whether people like it. Yeah. Because that's the dark side of writing. You know, my writer self is simultaneously all that's best about me as a person, you know, the most intensely human. But also my writer self, the bit that cares about what other people think is all the stuff that's worse about me. You know, it's my most jealous bit, my most fragile bit. It's the ego kind of flutters and then doesn't want to behave itself. So you end up a bit over-preoccupied with what other people are doing. And, mm-hmm. you know, why does everybody like that person so much better than they like me? And, of course, the tragedy being that there are other people out there that are thinking that about me. Why is yeah. everyone reading her book rather than mine? <laughs> so, again, those are just all swampy, awful fogs and mists that you want to stay out of as much as you can. <laughs> yeah. Just focus on the work and everything else will work out. So I've realised I've kind of jumped to you writing that book. So let's just talk about how you got there because you went to university, you went to Leeds University to study English and French. And then I know at some point you were a bookseller. So was that the first thing you did when you left university or did you do something between? Well, I mean, I didn't do much. My brother was dying his long, slow, awful death. So I was a very bad temp for a while, really catastrophically bad. Could never work out how to use the fax machine and didn't like to admit it. Got very, very, very poor sense of direction. So uh, I remember this humiliating place where I just kept getting lost. And once I had to pick up these people from reception, this enormous building in the city. And the only way I knew how to get from where my office was to the reception was to walk around the outside of the building like you'd go out the door and then walk around the outside of the building. So I used to do that. But then this one day it was pouring with rain and I could see these people were thinking, what's she doing? And I was just talking about fresh air. But it was because I just literally didn't know how to, I just couldn't get from reception to our office apart from going around the outside of the building. <laughs> loads of stuff like that, terrible stuff. The nice thing about my life now is people think I'm so kind of competent and amazing, but it's just because I've worked out how to do the very, very small amount of things that I'm really good at. And either not do or get other people to help me with all the stuff that I'm not good at, like finding my way to places, (laughs) using doing technology, adding up, you know, driving, all those things. I find them incredibly hard. So, yeah, so because you do need to be practically good to be a temp. And, of course, I wasn't and I couldn't type. So that was just all awful and humiliating. And then... I worked in my parents' pub, you know, so I didn't have anything like any kind of a career. I was married, so I travelled with my husband quite a lot. And then all that all went wrong. I didn't have to do anything. And I thought, well, the only thing I've ever been able to do well is read books. And so that's when I got a job in a bookshop. And then I did work in bookshops for 10 years and fairly immediately had a, well, actually fairly immediately is a lie because on the first day, it was such a horrible shock to realise I was nowhere near as well read as I thought I was. Yes. Because again, I think until you work in a bookshop, you don't realise how much goes on in a bookshop. You know, it's not just about the novels you like. It's also about, again, because of having this very, very poor sense of geography. So just always being really humiliated in the travel section, not knowing that, you know, Madeira maps would be with Portugal. And I mean, I still just wanted to cry over trying to order the ordnance survey map. I was like me when I was, because I, I started out in Waterstones as well. And I remember they said to me, oh, we order our history section in chronological order. <laughs> I was oh just gosh. like, well, 
<laughs> so I, I don't know how to do that so I used to I'm embarrassed to say I used to get my phone out on the shop floor and google certain things to work out yeah. time frames I don't do that in my shop yeah no that's I mean that's quite hard isn't it you'd have to be quite well again it's not is you might know history in chronological order but then you would also need to know all the other things you need to know in the bookshop I think that's the interesting thing yeah because of course I always really like doing the sections that I really like and just didn't, you know, ugh, sport, ugh, true crime, <laughs> ugh. I mean, I used to really turn my nose up at self-help, which is funny, especially now that I've written a couple of self-help books. The irony. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, so I now think, you know, if only I hadn't been so snooty about the self-help section, I might have got my life together a bit earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about your second book. Your second book, A Manual for Heartache, it obviously related to the process of grief that you went through after the death of Matty. But it talks a lot about how you talk a lot about how it's okay to feel bad about bad things happening. You touch on the premise of how difficult people find it to accept that they're sad and, and that actually that's that's okay and that's that's part of the process. What advice would you give someone that was going through that at the moment? Well, I think that one of the sort of the problems of modern life is that we've almost been advertised to so much. And again, it's part of this like big shift away from, you know, the church. You know, we used to sort of believe because we were told that we would lead a good life and then our rewards would come in heaven. That was like the point of life. And then, of course, we've now lived this increasingly secular life, which in loads of ways is a really good thing. It's not really about religion. It's just about what we believe. But the things that we were told in church have been kind of replaced by being told that if we only buy the right soap powder or if we only buy the right type of pram, then life's going to be easy. And, of course, that's not true either. So mm. the more I think about it, the more I think we, we kind of slightly get sold this idea. Again, if we do the right thing, make the right decisions, buy the right stuff, be good little consumers, then things will work out. And, of course, it's not like that at all. And I think it's just a really big shock the first time it happens, that thing that bad things happen to good people. And then I think so often people of all types, really, as in all types of people are vulnerable to, you know, we think there's something wrong with us when we feel sad. Whereas actually, I think life is often really sad. Even outside of big tragedies, life is often very sad and difficult to deal with. It kind of helps me to accept that rather than think there's something wrong with me that I'm feeling it sad. Mm. So what I kind of have been thinking about increasingly for a few years is like, it's bad enough feeling bad, but you don't want to feel bad about feeling bad. No, absolutely. Because <laughs> that adds a level of complexity. And then there's the whole thing about hiding the fact that you feel bad. That leads to lots more difficulties. And most of where we really damage ourselves is when something bad happens or sad happens, and then we try to block out the pain of that. It's that bit, what we then do. What we do to block the pain tends to be the thing that really screws us up in the longer term. So I think a lot about how to almost like sort of sit with my own frailties and fragilities a bit more rather than rush to you know fix myself or solve myself you know I'm a work in progress myself as well which I'm always very keen to point out far from perfect mm. deeply flawed but that is kind of I think the fun of well the fun I mean and again I just have to think of life as a game or else I just wouldn't play it so the only way I get myself through <laughs> is to imagine it as some kind of rather cruel board game <laughs> just being like you know, oh gosh, I've just done, gone down another snake. Never mind, let's hope for a ladder coming up. <laughs> <laughs> and I find that really, it really helps me. So I kind of just gamify everything. I'm always making up metaphors to get me through. I like doing that, you know. And what really propels me through is 
you know, honest connection with other human beings, which I think is that's that for me is where the honest beauty of everything mm-hmm. lies. I've got a lot more into nature recently because I've always been like quite resistant about that sort of thing. But actually, it does kind of help a bit more walking and swimming. Question about that: Is that something when you say recently? Is that something that's happened during lockdown, or was it like before then? Uh, it was a bit before that. So a friend of mine, who I have written about her certainly in my writing book, call her Claire the Therapist. A friend of mine has been trying to gently nudge me towards nature for years and I've been largely ignoring her. <laughs> um, so I was on the way before lockdown. And then, of course, lockdown kind of accelerated it because it was what there was, you know, mm-hmm. not being able to go anywhere, but being lucky. In, but, you know, I was lucky to have a garden and, of course, to live by the coast during lockdown. So that did make me think a lot about how, well, it made us all think a lot, didn't it? But, you know, when the kind of the air is clearer, if you think about, you know, like when we look back at this time in 10 years time, 20 years time, I'm really interested in how lockdown experience was so varied. Like it was a sort of a thing that was happening to everyone, but it appeared to me at the time that the impact of it was so incredibly different depending on lots of things, including where you were geographically, but also including what your domestic setup was. Mm-hmm. So like whether or not you had small kids, whether or not you had a partner. And again, if you didn't have a partner, whether or not you wanted one or not, you know, all those things just were so incredibly important. Uh, And that's even outside of, you know, what job you did. So were you like toiling away alone or were you frontlining, you know, all that sort of stuff. I think would be sort of interesting to think about in the future. But at the moment, actually, I must admit, I don't really want to think about it much. I find it very strange how there's just real pockets of very clear memories, but a lot of it's already just a big blur. Yeah, I did write all the way through it. Again, not with the idea of making it into something, but just for myself. And I'm really glad. I don't want to read it at the moment, but I'm really glad I did. Partly because, again, I've lost all concept of time over the last few years. I mean, I think pre-COVID, I think since 2016, (laughs) I think since David Bowie died, I feel like the universe has split into different bits. And sadly, I ended up in the shit bit. (laughs) (laughs) Was 2016, wasn't that the year where there was just this crazy number of people that died, like famous people? There was one year, I think it was the year we lost Bowie, where just the news just kept coming and got to the end of the year and it was like, okay, we need to stop now. Let's move on to next year. Yeah. It's all very strange, isn't it? Yeah, so I'm glad I wrote it down, but I don't at the moment want to consume my own writing on the subject. And I'm not really, re- I mean, I mean, having said that, I've read a couple of really interesting, I'm so, I say I don't want to, but then I'm also interested. I'm interested to see how COVID starts popping up in fiction. And I've read a couple of quite interesting kind of comic treatments where the novel's going along and then suddenly COVID happens. So Nina Stibby's One Day I Shall Astonish the World is very good. And Deborah Mogark's book, I think it's called The Little Black Dress. Um, yes. You know, which I also thought was very, very good and very funny. And then I read a wonderful novel recently, which is called Delphi by Claire Pollard, you know, which is that's certainly the first pandemic novel I've read. And I just thought it was just wonderful and slightly alarming. I, I'm not even sure if I should admit this, but her protagonist, the protagonist of the novel is so like me. Oh, yes. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's one of those things where I did think like, you know, gosh, did she, did she like hacked into my COVID diaries <laughs> and read them and then put them in her novel? But yeah, I thought it was wonderful, which goes to show that you said, I always do that with books. I say like, oh, I don't want to read something about that. And then I'll read something about that. And I'll think, oh, well, I like that. <laughs> that was excellent. <laughs> yeah, read more. That was excellent. I wasn't in the mood for that. And then I did read the first two pages and then just couldn't stop. And I had to carry on until I finished it. <laughs> So over the years, you've done a whole host of different things, but there seems to be a common theme of encouraging people to read for pleasure and to write. 
in fact, you've said in the past that you believe that reading has saved your life on a number of occasions. How important is it to you to be able to share that message with people? Well, I mean, I really like sharing with people. I am a sharer. And I think often readers, well, readers could divide into lots of other subgroups of readers. But I think there's kind of two really broad categories. So it's readers that just want to read books on their own. And then there's people that want to read books and then want to talk about what they've read. And I'm very definitely in the second group of people. So when I read a book that I love, I instantly want to tell someone about it. And that's a really important part of my reading identity. And if there's nobody there to tell about it, I feel a bit sort of lonely and cross. So, so yeah, so that kind of sharing. So it's a two-step process for me. And it's very rare that I read something where, unless I don't like, you know, if I've got a complex response to it, I don't want to sag it off on social media, if you see what I mean. I only talk about books that I like. But it's really rare that I finish a book I like and I don't want to. That's why I love book selling so much, because that's the best bit of the job, like... Mm -hmm reading books and then going to work and then people coming in and I, I just like to when people come in and say like you know what's good lately that kind of thing yeah and then I would just say this and this and this and this and do you like this because then you'll like this and that used to make me feel a profound sense of satisfaction like several mm-hmm. times a day yeah it is it's one of the best bits of the job for sure your third book dear reader which i said to you just before we started recording how much i love this book i love it um <laughs> it, it's, it's one of my favorite books in the book you talk about books you've read and where you were at the time and the impact they had on you i love it because there's so many books you mentioned that i also read and loved and also an awful lot of other people that will read it will feel the same how did that book come about um actually that book came about because i was stuck writing my novel <laughs> <laughs> So I was stuck writing my novel, felt very miserable about it, thought I would never be able to write a novel or indeed any more books. And then I think probably my agent said, what would you like to write about? And I said, like, oh, well, ever since I worked at Hatch House, I used to be in the basement shelving paperback fiction and think I'd like to write a book about books. And she said, well, why don't you do that? Um, I said, can I? Then can I? And she said, yes, you can. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> So, and it's rather nice, isn't it, that book? And I like, you know, I get so many lovely messages about it because, of course, I wrote it. I'd completely finished it by the time the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. It was all done. Uh, and then I kind of thought about putting in a pandemic afterward and didn't. So it's pandemic free. But actually, it kind of slightly, uh, I think it suits the mood of, mm-hmm. I hear from a lot of people that have found it consoling and comforting. Yeah over the last couple of years so that's really nice so yes it's funny how things work out isn't it so my little book that I wrote because I was stuck writing another book agenda <laughs> <laughs> doing really well it's funny actually when you read your writing when your, your writing style is very chatty makes it sound I don't think that's the right word but it is like I can hear your voice when I'm reading your books especially with Dear Reader and Rise Door Down it's just like we're sat having a cup of tea and just having a bit of a chat about it which is really nice is that something that you kind of consciously do when you're writing or is that just the way it happens? Definitely now I consciously do it. Initially, it probably maybe did start happening a little bit accidentally. I tell you what was really helpful for me was that Manuel Vratic, my second book, I read the audio version and I found it really interesting reading it out loud. And again, I got really stuck writing that book and managed to unstick myself by recording myself, transcribing the recordings, editing the recordings. And then people often said about that book, like it felt like we were sitting on a sofa together. So then I thought, actually, I want to do that on purpose. I'm going to do that intentionally. So I more and more think about that now with my nonfiction. 
that's what I'm aiming for. I want the reader to feel like they are on a sofa with me. Mm -hmm. And so I think about how to do that. Mm, I think it comes across. I really do. I think it's yeah. it's the kind of book that you can kind of read with a duvet on you and you kind of like, I'm just having a bit of a chat with somebody in my head. Yeah. You know, I really mean to do it. I've sent it like from my heart to the reader's heart. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, via voice, via words, via whatever. It's a heart to heart communication. And I've thought a lot about how to try to do that and how to make that happen. So whenever people say to me, like, it feels like you've written this just for me, it's like, I mean, I have. I might not have known that that person existed as a specific individual, but that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to write something for someone who would need it in this moment. So I'm interested in that. I'm really interested in the relationship between writers and readers. I want to carry on thinking about that and exploring it. So how is the process of writing your non-fiction different from your fiction? Because you did publish a fiction novel in the I end. Did. It, it, everyone yes, is still alive came out yay <laughs> it came out last year how is that different from all your non-fic well I suppose what I do feel now about memoir is I do feel like a bit of an expert at it and because I've been teaching memoir now and it's actually almost the teaching that's taught me more than the writing except of course they virtuously circle each other you know so I feel like quite an expert at memoir writing but with writing fiction, I still feel like a complete novice. So I've written a novel and I'm writing another one, but I still feel like a complete beginner. But I kind of like that. It actually feels really nice that I've got an area of writing where I do feel very accomplished and an area of writing where I absolutely feel like a lonely apprentice. It kind of feels nice to have them both going on. Because I teach a lot, but I wouldn't teach you like how to write a novel course you know like a lot of my teaching is good for novels as well as memoir you know I teach about characterization or whatever but I wouldn't as far as like how to write a novel I mean I just still don't think I know you know I'm still trying to work that stuff out so it feels really <laughs> different for me and then the main difference in a way the really liberating thing about writing fiction of course is that you're not pegged to the truth or any responsibility to the truth you can just make stuff up so that's fantastic and then the funny difficulty is that there's no parameters so because you could write about anything that's what I have difficulty with. I have difficulty narrowing it down. And yeah. that's really why the first novel took me so long, as well as excessive, being excessively perfectionist about it and wanting it to be like too good too soon. Mm -hmm. um, it was just that, there, that, you know, there's this whole rich, stimulating world out there and I hadn't worked out how to... It's, these days I do it almost like, I don't know anything about art, but that notion of a viewfinder, which artists use, like they make a... You can, even, you can do it with your hands. Make a square with your hands and hold it up to the landscape and then you narrow in on that. Mm -hmm. And with fiction, that's kind of like what I'm working out how to do. How do I use a viewfinder so I can just take a slice of life and then write about that, whereas all my earlier attempts were sort of too sprawling, too big, couldn't control it, too much going on. So, yeah, so definitely this second novel will take me a fraction of the time of the first one because I learned a lot from doing the first one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that whole kind of blank piece of paper thing, isn't it? When you've got a blank piece of paper and it's like, go create. It's like, oh God, my head, you know, it's, it's just too much to consider. Yeah, it's kind of almost too exciting, isn't it? And I, you know, I really want to write a historical novel and then people say, but what? And straight away my brain sort of explodes, you know, I don't know, pilgrim roots, witches, World War Two, <laughs> Something that happened. Cornwall, St. Michael's Mount, something in the <laughs> sea, you know. <laughs> the sea, the sea is going to be in it. And God and fear and love and children and you know there being no penicillin and uh, but yeah how I'll narrow that down uh, well I probably I know how I'll do it I'll probably attach to some physical object in real life and then build out from there is probably what I'll do but that's something for the future heard it here first 
So these days you're back in Cornwall. You moved there to be close to your parents. And how's that for you? How's life for you? Well, obviously it's fantastic being near the sea. And I do find Cornwall very inspiring. Very, very, very keen on lighthouses. I love a lighthouse too. I know. I just want to look at lighthouses and sob at the beauty of lighthouses. And it very much suits with my increasing interest in nature. So that's all very good. And spend a lot of time looking at my cats because that's very restful. One of the cats is currently on the sofa with her. She kind of, I just, it makes me feel so happy to see her. She's so trusting. She just kind of like lies out with her tummy up and her paws. And she's slightly anxiety inducing because she always does look a little bit like she's died. But she hasn't. She's just kind of like, just, just, just sort of like relaxed. And she was a rescue cat. So when she first came, she was so sort of like, scared and nervous and whenever anyone got the broom out she'd run away whereas now she trusts us and she just ligs herself out all over the furniture and I just think what a sweet and beautiful thing so I like that I do like going to London particularly I do in a funny kind of way despite everything I've just said I still feel quite an urban creature at heart mm. but of course I am you know I get to live both lives mm. so that's interesting I like to spend more time in libraries as well Every time a friend says about being in a library, as in, you know, I went to the British Library, or I went to the London Library, or I've been working all day in Gladstone Library or whatever, I just feel this like, deep, utter yearning for a library and a schedule and no technology and just to be able to get on with my work. Maybe that's what my dream about being in Oxford was, as well as being drinking at the decanter <laughs> with Max Porter. <laughs> You've pinpointed it. I normally ask people around about this point of the interview whether they still find time to read and it's still a priority for them. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I already know the answer to that for you. So you're obviously an avid reader. What was the last book you read? So I read Quilt on Fire, The Messy Magic of Midlife by Christy Watson, uh, which I really enjoyed. I like Christy Watson a lot. She's written a couple of books about nursing, the language of kindness and the courage to care. And then this one is... There's a little bit about nursing in it because she goes back to critical care during the pandemic. But it's more broadly about midlife, really, which because I'm in midlife now. So I'm very interested in reading about it. And I just thought it just it was that thing, actually, funnily enough, that I try to do with readers where I just felt like I was having an honest chat with a helpful, wise friend. And I yeah, so I really liked it. It's really interesting how little there is about in midlife menopause you know what shock it is because nobody's talked about it so I'm quite interested in that at the moment and I, as ever as I've done all my life using books to find stuff out yeah you know yeah. using books as a resource that help me that make me feel less alone that give me information and to cheer me up as I'm still doing the same thing I am actually reading less probably than I ever have and it's because I am watching telly with my son so I don't like watching telly, but of course he does. So in the effort of being a good mother, rather than insisting that all we do is, you know, read George Orwell together, <laughs> I'm watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which I must say, I'm very much enjoying it. But of course, you know, all my life when people have said, how do you read so much? I've always said, I don't watch telly. And nobody ever believes that it's as simple as that. But it's as simple as that. If you're quite a fast reader and don't watch telly, you can read a book a day. So, of course, now that I'm watching a few episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine with him every day, that means I'm not reading a book every day. So that does feel peculiar. But again, the thing with kids is, as they say, the truest thing I've read anywhere about kids is 
the days are long, but the years are short. So I kind of think, well, if I have a couple of years when I'm reading slightly less, you know, because I'm watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine and learning, you know, interesting new things to say, like, oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like it. There's these one of these like sort of awful detectives the other day said, "You know what really chafes my crack?" <laughs> so I <keep> saying <laughs> but it's that funny thing, isn't it? Because most people watch a lot of telly, and I don't watch very much. So I always I keep saying to people like, "I'm watching this very interesting program," and I say to people, "It's quite nice watching television. You know, it's quite relaxing." And they look at me like, "Yeah, like everybody else knows this." <laughs> Not new information. Yeah, the other night we had some popcorn. It was quite enjoyable. It's like, yeah. Who knew? There are other things to do other than just endlessly reread Virginia Woolf's diaries. Who knew? <laughs> Constant learning experience. So I'm always interested in hearing about the book that changed your life. I mean, I have a theory that if you're a reader, there is a book out there that had a really significant impact on them. And that could be professionally, it could be personally. Do you have a book like that? And if so, what is it? Well, it's difficult narrowing it down because I have loads like that, I would say. Um, but the one I've gone for is When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, who was a surgeon who then got lung cancer and then wrote about the end of his life as he was in the end of his life. And it's just such a brilliantly observed book. And I just wrote it at that time. You know, I'd written my first book. I interviewed his wife, Lucy. She's, she writes an afterword in the book, which is very beautiful. But I interviewed her and, you know, they had a little daughter. And uh, it just really helped me think, well, life is short, so I'd better try and live it, you know. And it kind of combined somehow with the timing of me having, you know, written. You know, I lost so much. Of, or did I lose it? But, you know, I've spent so much of my life grieving my lost brother mm. and of course it's pointless to regret that or think I shouldn't have spent so much time doing it and maybe I spent the right amount of time because maybe mm. there is some kind of equation with love and grief I don't really believe that I think I could have had some better therapy a bit earlier and I needn't have been quite so miserable and quite so drunk for quite so long <laughs> but definitely reading the Paul Kalanithi at the time I did just did help me kind of slightly focus more onto my idea now which is not sort of like you know life is supposed to be nice and if it's not then that's because there's something wrong with me and I can't cope and this is all dreadful whereas now I'm a bit more you know life is full of pain and terror mm. especially if you love people but that's what it's for and again it's that you know these days I try to think that life is a learning experience because if you think of life as a learning experience it can take the edge off even some of the hardest lessons I think yeah I think books like that is similar to this dying a memoir, which is kind of a similar sort of thing where people that are obviously in a really very difficult time of their life to be able to kind of extract from them how they're feeling at that point is just really insightful, I think, because obviously those of us that are here can't imagine what it would be like to be dealing with that kind of sense of mortality. So I think they're really important books to read. I think people should read them to kind of understand a, probably where we're going to end up going, but also B, there's a certain amount of empathy that then it generates, isn't it? When people are often sympathetic about people being ill, but if you've got this whole other level, it I don't know, I just think it's very insightful. Yeah, and I think that um, one of my favourite ways to think about memoir writing is that what memoir writing is, is it's just reporting back from an experience. Mm -hmm. So the memoirist goes to an experience, quite often one they haven't asked for, 
And then, you know, which is the difference really, but, you know, most travel literature, the writer has intentionally set out on their journey. A lot of memoir, the writer ends up in a situation they haven't asked for, like I did in my book and like Paul Kalanithi does his. And you just, you know what, you report back anyway, because it's your job as a human, as someone who notices stuff as a writer. Yeah. We've touched on all of your previous books, but you have a new book out this year. It came out in January called Write It All Down. Tell us about the book. Yeah, so one of the fine things that's happened to me over the last few years since writing my first book is that I was being asked to teach memoir writing and just realising how much I utterly love encouraging people to write as well as to read. Mm-hmm. So I yeah wrote a book about memoir writing really it probably works for all writing but it is specifically how to try to get a book out yourself but equally I think you could just use it for any kind of writing you know just how to get yourself to do a bit of writing and that one of the main things about writing is it's an acorn activity so people often think that before they start writing they've got to have some big plan or big conception of what they're going to do and how they're going to do it whereas actually that's the wrong way to think about it really the best way to think about it is to just like make a start and then you know the more you if you plant a seed and water it then it'll grow and that's kind of why I kept giving up I mean I just I think it did also grow out of teaching people but also because people kept asking me they kept saying like so your brother was not over like when you were 17 and then you wrote a book about it when you were 42 like why did it take you so long and then I just kind of thought about why it took me so long mm-hmm. And then thought about how I could show other people how to not get caught up in the lumps and bumps in the same way that I had. You know, how to sort of smooth out the surface a bit more for other people is what I'm all about these days. And of course, I kept giving up because I thought the fact that I found it hard meant I wasn't talented enough. Whereas that's not true now, I realise. Writing is hard, but you just crack on, just carry on. (laughs) Yeah, I was at a book launch last night and had this conversation with a couple of authors there, um, some debut children's authors, about the fact that when you're kind of outside of the industry, the author is kind of a bit of a mythical creature. And, you know, you don't really think about how those books have been created. And it's been so interesting speaking to people like yourself and, and others in the industry that have successfully published books and how they've got to it, because it is a process isn't it and it's it's not like there's not a magical wand you can wave and you have to it's, it's a lot of hard work and it's a lot of dedication but one person I was chatting to last night specifically said to me I never thought I could ever be an author and then I started to look at other things and thought wait a minute well why can't I and then started to just try things out I think that's the message isn't it to anyone that's interested in in writing or has even got the slightest aspirations this is just to give it a go yeah it can be you and I think that again for I'm not even quite sure why but this sort of cultural idea we have of authors as kind of slightly sitting in their towers weaving their tails and always being very rich is what everybody thinks about writers which I think is quite interesting <laughs> and then again that it's that it is some kind of you know fairy godmother you know you've either been tapped by the muse or you've not whereas actually I think it's much more about like are you willing to do the graft? Because <laughs> yeah. it is, it's hard graft. I and, mean, you know, and it's that, it's taken me a long time to realise that it's okay for it to be hard. Like, so again, I was stuck in a whole thing for ages where I just felt embarrassed. You know, I felt embarrassed that I could, you know, my long line of ancestors, all of whom were poor and did menial work for almost no money and trying to tell those people, you know, trying to tell people that worked underground for 12 hours at a time in the freezing cold, that writing is work too you know it just used to make me feel like a twat and then eventually I realized you know what no this is my life now and I can own it and writing is hard and it's what I do and I don't need to feel bad that I'm no longer getting paid 
whatever it was at the time, like six quid an hour to serve pints. I can own the fact that this is my work now and I'm allowed to find it difficult and then I'm allowed to do it anyway. So yeah, that's quite a big thing. Yeah. If there's one thing that you'd like somebody to get out of this book, what would that be? I'd love them to just do it, just make a start. And to just, it's the urge that's important. That's the thing. Everybody feels, well, not everybody. When you feel the urge, they feel a creative urge. And then fairly immediately, they get clouded over by all the things that come next. Oh, but I don't know what I do. And oh, that teacher at school said I was useless. No, I don't know if my, I don't even really know where apostrophes go. And oh, but, you know, there's no point doing it unless I could get published. And getting published is hard, so there's no point doing it. And oh, but I couldn't do it because what would Uncle Bob say? And oh, I couldn't do it because so-and-so might be upset. You know, so it's just about learning. Just zone out all those questions for the time being. The urge is enough. Just obey the instinct and start writing some stuff down and then kind of see what happens next. Yeah, good advice. You mentioned earlier on that you've been working on or you are, you've finished, I don't know, your second novel. Oh, I wish I'd finished it. I uh, haven't finished it. I'm working on it. It's, you know, not far off. <laughs> well, so that was my question. What are you working on at the moment? Are you just focusing on the novel? Are you doing any other nonfiction at the moment? Or is it very much in the fiction route? I've got another. I mean, I do tend to always be working on more than one thing at a time, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, except I cannot do it any other way. So I've learned to think of it. I think of it like a stove top with lots of pans on. Yeah. So my novel's boiling and my next nonfiction book is coming up to the boil. And then on the back of the stove, I've got another two novels just starting to simmer. So if I can, the trick of it is that I've got to be able to, I can manage all of that without obviously all the pans boiling over and me ending up in tears with a ruined lots of meals. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's just a wonderful place to end. (laughs) What a a wonderful I attend my stove. I think it's been so lovely chatting to you today. Thank you so much for being a guest. I really appreciate it. And um, good luck with your new novel. And thank you so much for all of your books that you've released so far. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.